San Francisco in the Roaring Twenties is a city that hasn't quite shaken her old self. Scratch the surface of civilization and out pumps the hot, chaotic blood of her Barbary Coast days. Sometimes somebody needs help bringing order back to this chaos, and that's where I come in. I work for the Federated Detective Agency. Sixty-three Audio and Rocket Eighty-Eight Productions present Adventures of the Federated Tech, created by Pete Lutz and Mark Slade, and adapted from stories by Dashiell Hammett. Tonight's story: Bodies Piled Up, dramatized by Pete Lutz. The Montgomery Hotel's regular detective had taken his last week's rake off from the hotel bootlegger in merchandise instead of cash had drunk it down, had fallen asleep in the lobby, and had been fired. I happened to be the only idle operative in the Federated San Francisco branch at the time, and thus it came about that I had three days of hotel coppering while a man was being found to take the job permanently. The Montgomery is a quiet hotel of the better sort, and so I had a very restful time of it until the third and last day. Then things changed. I came down into the lobby that afternoon to find Stacy, the assistant manager, hunting for me. One of the maids just phoned that there's something wrong up in 906. Let's go up and see. 906 is this way. I see it. The door's open. Yes. I told the maid to stay in the room. In the center of the floor stood said maid, staring goggle-eyed at the shut door of the closet. From under it, extending perhaps a foot across the floor toward us, was a snake-shaped ribbon of blood. Excuse me, dear. You can go now. I'll talk to you later. Don't step in the blood. What are you going to do? I'm going to open this door, see where this blood's coming from. Stay back. It's unlocked. Hey, it's a man. I got him. What? Another one. Holy Moses. My God, what is this? Whoa. <coughs> Stacy, get the woman out. Get doctors. Get the police. When the first body fell out and pitched into my arms, it was no great surprise. The blood on the floor had prepared me for something of the sort. I noticed as he fell that he had a six-inch slit down the back of his coat, and the coat itself was wet and sticky. But when another man followed, this one facing me with a dark, distorted face, I dropped the one I'd caught and jumped back. And as I jumped, a third man came tumbling out after the others. This was when the maid screamed and fainted. By this time, I was feeling none too steady myself. I'm no sensitive flower, and I've looked at a lot of unlovely sights in my time. But for weeks afterward, I could see those three dead men coming out of the closet to pile up at my feet, coming out slowly, almost deliberately, in a ghastly game of follow the leader. When I barked at Stacy to fetch some help, I noticed that he was deathly white himself, and keeping his feet only by clinging to the foot of the brass bed. But he understood me and followed my instructions. After he and the maid were out of the room, I pulled the three bodies apart, laying them out in a grim row, 
facing up. Then I made a hasty examination of the room. A soft hat was in the center of the bed. It fit the head of one of the men. The room key was in the door on the inside. I found no blood in the room except what had leaked out of the closet, and there was no sign of a struggle anyplace. The bathroom door was open, and in the bottom of the clawfoot tub, I found a shattered gin bottle which had been nearly full when broken, judging from the strength of the odor and the dampness in the tub. There were two drinking glasses in the bathroom, one in a corner, the other under the tub. Both glasses were dry, clean, and odorless. The inside of the closet door was stained with blood, and two more hats lay in the puddle of blood on the closet floor. Each of these hats fitted one of the dead men. That was all. Three dead men, a broken gin bottle, blood. Welcome back, Stacy. Hello. I brought the doctor. Hope you've got a strong stomach, Doc. Hmm. Mm. Yes, well, I've seen worse than this. Let me get to work. The police are on their way. Okay. The doctor's work was soon done. This man here was struck on the back of the head with a small blood instrument and then strangled. Uh, this one, hmm? Was simply strangled. And this last one, number three here, was stabbed in the back with a blade perhaps uh, five inches long. They've been dead for about two hours since noon or a little after. Two of these men were registered here. I recognized them a little while ago. Yeah, which ones? Well, this gentleman... He was the first to fall out, the one who was stabbed. Um, yes. Um, he's... he's Mr. Tudor Ingram. But this isn't his room. He was in 915, three doors down. Where was he from? When did he arrive? Three days ago. He said he was from Washington, D.C. All right. How about the other one? That's this, um, gentleman here. The one who was simply strangled and the third one to fall out of the closet. <laughs> um, yes. And he's the registered occupant of this room. Or rather, he was. I've known him for nearly four years. He took up occupancy here about that time, after his wife passed away. What was his name? Vincent Devlin. He was an insurance broker by trade. All right. So you don't know this other fellow here? Now that you mention it, his face is familiar. Oh, Landry, there you are. Uh, yes, Mr. Stacy, I've brought the police up. Is that all right? Of course. Of course. Nice room. I hear this hotel has big closets. I like a room with ample storage potential. Yeah, you never know when you're going to need it. Hello, fellas. Fill you in in just a sec. So, uh... We'll just stand here then, shall we? We'll try not to step in the blood. Yeah, good tip. Now, Landry, take a look at this man. Uh, he, he, he's dead, sir. I know that, Landry. Now buck up, young man, buck up. Look at his face. Yeah, yes, sir. I, I, I'm looking. Help me remember who he is. Oh, 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 yes. Yes, I know where I've seen him, Mr. Stacy. I've seen him many times in Mr. Devlin's company. Why, this is Mr. Devlin's room, isn't it, sir? Yes, Landry. And this is Mr. Devlin, right here. Sir? Mr. Devlin, sir? Why, why, he looks dead, too, sir. He certainly is, Landry. You're a very observant young man. Now... Did you observe this gentleman come into the hotel today? 
As a matter of fact, yes, I did, sir. I, I was on the desk. He, he came in with Mr. Um, um, Devlin at about five after twelve, uh, sir. Very good. That's all. What about Mr. Ingram, sir? Unfortunately, Mr. Ingram has <clears throat> passed on as well. That's all, Landry. Thank you. Return to your duties. Y yes, sir. After the young clerk departed, I spent a few minutes bringing the detectives, George Dean and Marty O'Gar, up to speed on the case. We looked through the pockets of the as-yet-unknown corpse and discovered cards and letters that identified him as Homer Ansley of the law firm of Lancashire and Ansley, whose offices were in the Miles Building, next door to Devlin's office, in fact. Then we looked through the other dead men's pockets. Devlin's got about 200 in his pockets. Pocket watch in his vest. Oh, nice one. Expensive. I count about a hundred in Ansley's wallet. He's got a watch, too. Not as nice as Devlin's. Jackpot, fellas. Ingram's got, besides the 300 I found in his pockets, a money belt with, here, count it, Marty, looks like Morna Grant, and two diamonds. Don't forget those two rings on his fingers. They look valuable. 85, 90, 95, uh, 200. Exactly 2,200 smackers in this money belt. Looks like robbery wasn't a motive, huh? You see anything else in Ingram's pockets? Room key. Either of you fellas find anything else on the bodies which shed a light on this caper? Nope. Uh-uh. Let's go through this one together and then search Ingram's room. I didn't find anything here first time I looked, but you never know. We conducted the most thorough examinations of both hotel rooms, but we found nothing that could teach us anything. In Ingram's room, we found a dozen or more packs of carefully marked cards, some crooked dice, and an immense amount of data on racehorses. A search through his other stuff told us that he had a wife in Buffalo and a brother who lived in Dallas, plus a list of names and addresses that we carried off to investigate later. But nothing in either room pointed, even indirectly, at murder. By this time in our investigation, Fells, the fingerprint expert from headquarters, had finished dusting the murder scene. I found a number of prints around the room, but until I check them with our files, I have no way of judging their value. I'm sorry, but even though Mr. Devlin and Mr. Ansley were both strangled, I was not able to lift any prints from either their necks or their collars. The maid who'd discovered the blood told us that she'd straightened up Devlin's room between 10 and 11 that morning. But I didn't put fresh towels in the bathroom. That's why I came back this afternoon. The door was unlocked, with the key on the inside, and as soon as I saw the blood, I rang up Mr. Stacy. No, I didn't see anybody in the corridor as I went in. What time did you straighten up Ingram's room? That was a few minutes after one. I'd tried to do it earlier, oh, between about 20 after 10 and a quarter to 11, but Mr. Ingram was still in his room. All right, miss. We're done with you. Send in the elevator man, will ya? It seems as if nobody in the hotel noticed anything suspicious around the time of the murders. Well, that's to be expected. If it was somebody staying here, he could have just gone back to his room with nobody the wiser. <laughs> True enough. On top of that, a hotel lobby like the Montgomery's is going to be a beehive at noontime, and our murderer could have left this room, shutting the door behind him, and walked away as neat as you please, knowing that he'd attract little to no attention. Yep. And to cover his tracks, he could take the stairs down to the lobby. 
Or just walk down one flight and catch the alley. Oh, yes, speak of the devil. Come in, friend. Ah, uh, Mr. Stacy said I should tell you everything I know. Mr. Stacy is right as rain. Now, you operate the lift in this dump? Dump, sir? The Montgomery. Uh, uh, yes, sir. I'm the day man. 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Good, good. Now, tell us everything you know about the men who died. Yes, sir. Uh, well, Mr. Ansley and Mr. Devlin rode up to this floor from the lobby at a few minutes after 12. They were kidding each other about their golf scores from yesterday's game on the way up. Good. Very good. What else? What, what else? There ain't nothing else. The door opened and they got out and I went back down to the lobby. All right, that's all we need. Go on back to work. Thank you. Bye, and thank you, gentlemen. The door opened and they got out. <laughs> Do we have anything else on Ingram, Marty? Not much. There ain't nothing to show the slightest connection between Ingram and Devlin. Nobody ever seen them together in the hotel. Ingram usually stayed in his room alone until about noon and didn't return until late at night. Nobody could tell me nothing about his business affairs. Devlin and Ansley were friends, apparently, and worked in the same building, the, um, the Miles. Let's head over and talk to some people there. As it turned out, we needn't have wasted our time. Homer Ansley and Vincent Devlin were ordinary men who lived ordinary lives, according to Devlin's employees and Ansley's partner. There were no dark spots nor odd kinks, and so far as we could learn, their affairs were in perfect order. Ansley's partner told us that the two men had left today to have lunch together with a plan to stop at Devlin's room first for a drink from a bottle of gin that had been smuggled in by an acquaintance of his coming from Australia. Back out on the street, before putting on his hat, Ogar scratched his head and said, Well, this much is clear. If they went up to Devlin's room for a drink, it's a cinch that they were killed almost as soon as they got in the room. Them drinking glasses you found were dry and clean. Whoever turned the trick must have been waiting for them. I wonder about this fellow Ingram. I'm wondering too. Figuring it out from the positions I found them in when I opened the closet door, Ingram sizes up as the key to the whole thing. Devlin was back against the wall with Ansley in front of him, both facing the door. Ingram was facing them with his back to the door. The closet was just large enough for them to be packed in it, and too small for any of them to slip down while the door was shut. And then there was no blood in the room except what had come from the closet. Ingram, with that gaping slit in his back, couldn't have been stabbed until he was inside it or he'd have bled elsewhere. I imagine he was standing close to the other men when he was knifed, and whoever knifed him shut the door quickly afterward. You'll get no argument from me, but why should he have been standing in such a position? Do you dope it out that he and another killed the two friends and that while he was stowing their bodies in the closet, his accomplice finishes him off? Maybe. Three days later, that maybe was still as far as we'd been able to get. Ogar, Dean, and I gathered together in the room the Montgomery had given me to use as an office to discuss what little progress we'd made. Oh, there's nothing. I tell you, nothing. Nothing that gives us any bearing on their deaths. Bales and bales of telegrams sent out, asking for relatives and acquaintances of the dead men to be interviewed, 
and nothing. Same with me. I went after any connection between Ingram and the other two with no luck. We've tracked every minute of their time since Ingram arrived in San Francisco, and the only thing we've discovered is that there ain't no way either Devlin or Ansley knew or even had met Ingram. Well, he's an ex-con, spent two years in the New Jersey State Prison for assault with intent to kill. That was 15 years ago. He came here for the purpose of opening a gambling club, and it doesn't look like anything distracted him from those plans. Fells reported that them fingerprints he collected was the assistant managers, the maids, and ours. So I say again, nothing. It was now time to drop our search for the motive behind the killings and switch to trying to pick up the killer's trail. We knew the motive wasn't robbery unless there was something of sufficient value to make the murderer scorn the money in the victim's pockets. In our previous investigations, we hadn't altogether neglected the search for the killer's trail, but being human, we'd devoted most of our attention to finding a shortcut. Now we set out to find our man or men, regardless of what had urged him or them to commit the crimes. So, of the people who'd been registered in the Montgomery the day of the murders, we found nine who didn't have alibis, of which four are still registered. But there's only one in which we're particularly interested. J.J. Cooper of Anaconda, Montana is his name. Big feller. Forty-five or fifty. Says he's a mining man, but that didn't wash. Wires sent to Montana show that Cooper ain't known by nobody in Anaconda. So we're having him shadowed. Three of the five who checked out since the murders left forwarding addresses. Only one of them is still in the city, a Ross Orrett, who asked to have his mail sent to the general delivery window of the local post office. He arrived on the day of the murders and checked out the following day. If you can arrange to have the out-of-towners investigated, I'll go after Orit myself. Okay, phone us or drop by when you learn anything. Foley, Dick Foley, you here? You. Dick, I got a shadow job for you. Okay. Plant yourself at the Sutter Street Post Office, around the corner from Montgomery Street. Keep an eye on the general delivery window, looking for anybody who collects a plum-colored envelope. How do you know what color it is? I mailed it to him today. Inside's just a flyer for a local theater. I chose that color envelope to make it easy for you. Gotcha. Follow the receiver of that envelope and let me know where he goes. I spent the next day trying to solve the mysterious J.J. Cooper's game, but he was still a puzzle when I knocked off that night. At a little before five the following morning, Dick Foley dropped by my room on his way home to tell me what he'd done for himself. This guy orits our meat. Picked him up when he got his mail yesterday afternoon. Got another letter besides yours. Got an apartment on Van Ness. Took it the day after the killing under the name of B.T. Quinn. Packing a gun under his left arm. There's that sort of bulge there. Been visiting all the dives in North Beach. Who do you think he's hunting for? Who? Guy Kudner. Guy Kudner? Guy alias the Dark Man Kudner? Yep. Is Kudner in town? Don't know. But this Orit or Quinn, or whatever his name is, is surely hunting for him. In Rick's place, at Wapheelies, and at Pegatti's. Porky Grout tipped me off. Says Orit doesn't know Kudner by sight, but is trying to find him. Porky didn't know what he wants with him. 
This was news. This guy Kudner was the most dangerous bird on the coast, if not the country. He'd only been nailed once, but if he'd been convicted of all the crimes that everybody knew he'd committed, he'd have needed half a dozen lives to crowd his sentences into, besides another half dozen to carry to the gallows. This was a man, however, who had the right backing. Witnesses, alibis, juries, and rumor had it, the occasional judge. He'd seemed to have lost this backing only one time, up north, when he'd been convicted and sent over for a 1-14 to 14 year hitch. But things corrected themselves promptly because he was out on parole before the ink was dry on the press notices. Think Porky was coming clean? Chances are. But you can't gamble on him. No, that dirty little rat would sell out his family for the price of a flop. Is Orit acquainted here? Doesn't seem to be. Hasn't spoken to anyone who seems to know him. What's he like? Not the kind of egg you'd want to tangle with offhand if you ask me. He and Kudner would make a good pair. Dresses well and doesn't look like a rowdy. But harder than hell. A big game hunter. Our meat, I tell you. It doesn't look bad. If he's paired off with a dark man, it doesn't look bad at all. I'm telling you, this fella looks like three killings wouldn't disturb his rest any. I wonder where Kudner fits in. I can't guess. But if he and Orit haven't connected yet, then Kudner wasn't in on the murders. But he may give us the answer. I'm going to bet on Porky's dope being on the level. How would you describe Kudner? You know him better than I do. Yeah, but how would you describe him to me if I didn't know him? Um, a little fat guy with a red-forked scar on his left cheek. What's the idea? It's a good one. That scar makes all the difference in the world. If he didn't have it, your description would include all the details of his appearance. But he has it, so you simply say a little fat guy with a red-forked scar on his left cheek. It's ten to one that that's just how he's been described to Orit. I don't look like Kudner, but I'm his size and build, and with a scar on my face, Orit will fall for me. If he does, I ought to be able to learn a lot if he talks to me as Kudner. You can't get away with it. Kudner's too well known here. I'll have to take that chance, Dick. Anyway, or it's the only one I want to fool. Now I know just how to fashion the scar. It was a little after 11 the following night when Dick phoned me that Orit was in Pigatti's place on Pacific Street and apparently settled there for some little while. My scar already painted on my left cheek, I jumped into a taxi, and within a few minutes I was talking to Dick around the corner from the place in question. He's sitting at the last table back on the left side, and he was alone when I came out. You can't miss him. He's the only egg in the joint with a clean collar. You'd better stick outside, half a block or so away, with the taxi, Dick. Maybe Brother Orit and I will leave together, and I'd just as leave have you standing by in case things break wrong. Pigatti's place is a long, narrow, low-ceilinged cellar, always dim with smoke. Down the middle runs a narrow strip of bare floor for dancing. The rest of the floor is covered with densely packed tables, whose cloths are always soiled, and the management hasn't yet verified that prohibition is the law of the land. Most of the tables were occupied when I came in and half a dozen couples were dancing. Few of the faces seen were strangers to the morning lineup at police headquarters. Peering through the smoke, I saw Orit at once, seated where Dick had said he'd be, one eye on the dancing couples and the other on the door. I walked down the other side of the room and crossed the strip of dance floor directly under a light so that the scar might be clearly visible to him. Then I sat down facing him at a vacant table close by. 
After tense 10 minutes, in which we pretended not to be interested in each other, Orit slowly got to his feet. With his right hand in the pocket of his coat, he walked straight over to my table and sat opposite me. Kudner? Looking for me, I hear. You were looking for me, too. I didn't know what the correct answer to that would be, so I just grinned. But the grin didn't come from my heart. I realized in that moment that I'd made a mistake, one that might cost me something before we were done. This bird wasn't hunting for Kudner as a friend, as I had carelessly assumed, but was on the warpath. The image of those three dead men falling out of the closet in room 906 flooded my mind. Don't bother going for your gun. My revolver was inside the waistband of my trousers where I could get at it quickly, but his was in his hand. So I kept my hands on the table. Suppose you just speak your piece, or it... Uh-uh. Or it never took his eyes from mine. I didn't like the way they seemed to be changing, growing darker, showing more of the whites, the eyes of a congenital killer. Something was coming and there was no use waiting for it. I drove a foot at his shins under the table, and at the same time pushed the table into his lap and threw myself across it. The bullet from his gun went off to one side. Another bullet, not from his gun, thudded into the table that was upended between us. The second shot took him in the arm, so I let go of him and fell away, rolling over against the wall and twisting around to face whoever was shooting. And I did all this just in time to see, jerking out of sight around a corner, Guy Kuttner's scarred face. And as it disappeared, a bullet from Orit's gun splattered the plaster from the wall where it had been. I had just enough time to chuckle over the thought of Orit, wondering how there were two Kudners showing up at the same time, but then things got too quick for me to take notice of all the details. A lot of shots went back and forth between Orit and the real Kudner. I had my own gun out by now, but I was playing a waiting game, keeping away from the bullets that were flying around as best I could. By this time, of course, we three had the place to ourselves. Pigatti's had four exits, and as soon as the shooting started, the patrons quickly used all of them. Finally, in less time than it takes to tell it, Kudner dropped his left-hand gun, and as he raised the other, sagged forward and fell to one knee. Orit stopped firing abruptly and flopped over on his back, spread out full length. Kudner fired once more, wildly, into the ceiling and pitched down on his face. I sprang to Orit's side and kicked his guns away. He was lying still, but his eyes were open. Are you Kudner? Or was he? He. Good. Orit closed his eyes, still alive but passed out. I crossed to where Kudner lay and turned him over on his back. His chest was literally shot to pieces. His thick lips worked and I put my ear down to them. Did I get him? I decided to lie to him. Yeah, he's already cold. At that, his dying face turned into a triumphant grin. Oh, sorry. Three in hotel. Mistake. Wrong room. Killed one. Had to. Other two. Protect myself. I... I, I oh. A week later, things were pretty much wrapped up. The Montgomery had found their replacement house detective, and I was free to return to the Federated Detective Agency. I stuck my head in the old man's door to let him know I'd returned. Good afternoon. I hear you solved that triple homicide. Yes, sir. Well, I've uh, just come from seeing the fellow who was inadvertently the cause of it all. Oh? Oh, sit down and tell me about it. 
Feel free to smoke if you wish. Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, this Orat fellow was a lieutenant for a high-class crook, what the newspapers might call a mastermind. Came the day when this mastermind had accumulated enough money to retire from crime and settle down as an honest man. We all have such dreams, I suppose. Hmm? Oh, yes, yes, sir. So what this mastermind forgot was that he had two lieutenants, one in New York and the other in San Francisco, and they were the only ones who knew he was a crook, and he was afraid of both of them. So this mastermind likely thought he could rest easier if both of these lieutenants were out of the way. That's right. And so it happened that neither one had ever met the other. So this ex-boss convinced each one that the other was double-crossing him and for safety's sake would have to be bumped off. And they both fell for it. The New Yorker came to the West Coast and the San Franciscan was told that the New Yorker would be arriving on such and such a day and staying in such and such a hotel. And so, by playing both sides against each other, his desired result would be that both might die in the ensuing melee. And you'd be almost right in assuming so, but he was sure that at least one would die, and then there'd be only one left for him to dispose of later. Yes. Now, I've read your earlier reports. It seems you assumed at some point that the killings were the result of mistaken identity that the murderer had gotten into the wrong room. Do you still feel this way? Absolutely, sir. Orit confirmed it today. He was staying in room 609, and the murders were in room 906. We both, that is, Orit and I, we agree that it probably happened this way. Suppose Kudner went to the hotel on the day Orit was due and took a quick slant at the register. He wouldn't want to be seen looking at it, so he didn't turn it around and ended up glancing at it as it faced the desk. Now, when you read three-digit numbers upside down, you have to transpose them in your head to get them straight. For example, 123, you'd see it as 321 and then turn them around in your head. That's probably what Kudner did with Orit's room number. Yes, but I'm certain you realize that the room number 609, upside down, still looks like the number 609. Oh, sure. Kudner'd be keyed up, of course, and thinking of the job ahead of him, so he probably overlooked that fact. So he turned it around and made it 906, Devlin's room. And he looked at the key rack and saw that 906 wasn't there, so he probably figured no time like the present so he could do the job and roam the hotel corridors without attracting attention. With Ansley being about the size and age of Orit, he might fit any sort of description Kudner would have gotten. Kudner went for Ansley, and then Devlin, who was probably in the bathroom getting the glasses, heard the scuffle, dropped the bottle and glasses, and rushed out and promptly got his. A common trait of killers is that they feel that two murders are not much worse than one. Exactly, and why should he want to leave any witnesses around? Indeed. So... How does this third man become a victim in your story? We figure that Ingram was more than likely just passing by on the way from his room to the elevator, heard the racket, and came to investigate. And Kudner probably put a gun in his face and made him stow the two other bodies in the closet. And then he stuck his knife into Ingram's back and slammed the door on him. And that's how it probably happened, sir. Your reasoning is certainly plausible. Did you have anything else to report? Just one more thing, sir. Just when Orit and I were wrapping things up, a nurse came in and shooed me out, accusing me of getting her patient excited. <laughs> so I got up to leave, but Orit had one more thing to tell me. Keep your eye on the New York dispatches, and maybe you'll get the rest of the story.
It ain't over yet. Nobody has anything on me out here. That shooting in Pagatti's was self-defense so far as I'm concerned. And as soon as I'm on my feet again and can get back east, there's gonna be a mastermind holding a lot of lead. That's a promise. Hmm, very interesting. What's your opinion of this so-called promise? Oh, I believe him, sir. I very definitely believe him. have been listening to Bodies Piled Up, Episode 5 of Adventures of the Federated Tech. Our cast consisted of the following players. Pete Lutz as the Federated Tech and the Elevator Man, Frank Guglielmelli as Mr. Stacy, Angela Young as the Maid, John Bell as the Doctor, Landry, and Detective Dean, Jason D. Johnson as Sergeant O'Gar, Paul Arbisi as Detective Fells and Kudner, Mark Kalita as Dick Foley, Jeff Moon as Orit, and Joe Stavko as the old man. Music was by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. Bodies Piled Up was written by Dashiell Hammett and appeared in the December 1st, 1923 issue of Black Mask Magazine. This program was produced under the supervision of Pete Lutz. This is Darren Rockold speaking. Join us again soon for Episode 6, The Tenth Clue, Part 1 of a very special two-part adventure. Sixty-three audio. Eighty-eight production.